All right, gang. Hey, it is your favorite Tuesday of the week. I know that you're stoked to be here on The True Wealth Show. I am your host, David Littlejohn, and we do not have Katie this week because she is in Mexico. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not on air, so don't worry. Her house is actually protected by house sitters, so uh, if you know if you know where she is, it will be useless to case her place. Uh, <laughs> but she's having a great time catching some rays, and so uh, I have a, a good buddy of mine who is pinch hitting today, and this is one I, I seldom get a chance to do this, so this is really pretty cool. And the beauty of this is totally caught him on his heels last minute because uh, he is he's actually out of area and does a fair amount of travel because this is somebody that I turn to and and he so his clients are other financial professionals right so I am his client in a sense but uh, we talk shop often and since he was in town I invited him to join me on the show today so I'd like to introduce everybody uh, from Scion Investments Mr. Xavier Allen so welcome to the show. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy to be here. And uh, because I mean, I told you I'd do this too, right? Uh, before we, I gave him very little prep time, so you're about to see how how well he handles himself on his feet. But uh, so Xavier does not roll off the tongue for radio. Plus, he has authorized me, so he has been just X to me since I met him. And so. Uh, Anyway, I'll, you'll hear me say that on the radio today. It's like, so X, what's on your mind, right? And uh, that's who I'm talking about. I know that probably <laughs> surprised them. Like, really? The only other guy in the studio? Thank you for clearing that up, Dave. Uh, so, first of all, at uh, now we have, I got I to gotta prep everybody. This is the compliance statement. Okay, now compliance, if you're wondering what that means, is we have lawyers when it comes to financial stuff. And when you're actually a practicing financial professional and not just a radio personality, right? So we are holding, like I have a financial advisory business with actual clients that we give advice to. I have to preface this with, I'm not giving advice today, nor is Xavier, okay? But we're gonna talk about the financial industry and something I think is not particularly well understood and we're going to cover just some interesting elements today around what we call alternative investments right so x give me can you give us like give me the backdrop on first a little bit about you and then scion so our listeners get a handle on like why are you here right i would love to i would i would love to <laughs> So background on myself, I have had the privilege and the honor to work with a lot of great financial advisors on both coasts, from the folks that are always on CNBC, the, the Morgan Stanleys and the Merrill Lynch's of the world, to the more so independent financial advisors like Mr. Little John here. And it's just really been a great learning experience over the past decade, originally from the East Coast, currently stationed in Seattle over the last couple years. And really what Scion Investments does cover your blind spot, right? We can't plan for the unexpected. We can try, but only what is planned for via financial planning and all of your goals and all of the things that are involved will lead to that asset allocation. And we are not stocks, not bonds, but the other thing, right? That increase diversification and ultimately lower correlation and make sure you're getting your income on time 
in the mailbox in the amount that you requested. Right. And so there's uh, – I'm going to remind you guys. I know since – so first of all, X, we have the smartest listeners on the planet. That's the cool part, right? I appreciate so the heads up. The folks, folks listening are the smartest ones, and so I like that. Uh, we've talked about this on the show before. I've had – I've said it a bunch of times. Uh, you maybe heard it. It's sort of a joke. I say, mind your shuns, right? So you got diversification, allocation, and correlation. And these are those buzzwords in the financial biz. They're total buzzwords. But what happens, you can see this too, because this is the language. So uh, Xavier and I, when we are talking, he will say something like, well, you know, it's going to increase your, uh, cor- you know, lower your correlation in your investment strategy. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And if you're listening going, what? Okay, here's the way this one works in a nutshell. Okay, diversification, most of us understand. You right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? That's not so tough. The the correlation is the one most people get hung up on. You, you want to tackle this one or you want me to roll with it? It's it's zigging when others are zagging, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and I love, it's basically, yes. So I use a silly example, right? If you own two stocks, you're more diversified than if you own one. But if those two stocks, not a recommendation by the way here, but if you own Home Depot and Lowe's, are you diversified? Technically, yes, but Home Depot and Lowe's are really similar, right? They both walk and talk and act like each other. And while they do have some unique considerations that are individual risks, right? What we will call non-system risk, or here's another, I love this one makes you sound smart. You want to sound smart at your next party, you say idiosyncratic risk, right? That's those those individual companies. So idiosyncratic risk. well, something happens to the CEO of Home Depot, right? Doesn't really affect Lowe's. But if something happens to the industry, both Home Depot and Lowe's are going to be affected. So they're really highly correlated. That's zigging when the other guy zigs. That is what you want in your investment portfolio. Is like if you want your diversification to work, you need low correlation. Okay, That's the zig and the zag thing. You just said it cooler than me. Like, you know, so why does it take me like a minute to say what you can say in four seconds? <laughs> you know, you, some may say I do this too often. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. Yeah, no, you're just <laughs> you're just better at your job than me. Uh, oh, so, stop it! Stop it! Yeah, the the allocation one we're not going to go into a ton, except to say that when you buy stocks, and then you can be diversified amongst your stocks, but you're not diversified amongst the entire market of investable assets, right? So a lot of people will look at bonds as well, because that's really traditional. They're a different form of investment. But bonds started to do something odd. And I, you know, I'm going to say, I mean, you say you've been doing this about 10 years, I've been doing this a little over 20. Uh, that's not bragging, by the way, I'm just dating myself. <laughs> and, you know, bonds used to behave different. I can remember back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and really up through 2008, bonds were a pretty decent diversifier. Meaning that if you put bonds in with a stock investment strategy, you tended to get lower fluctuations and higher returns. Like they they really did a good job of complementing each other. But then after the market crash of 2008, uh, the Federal Reserve had to intervene to stabilize the U.S. currency because, right, 2008 was sort of this banking collapse, and it was a, a whole lot of stuff that, frankly, we could do several shows 
on that. But you guys are smart, so we don't have to do that several shows. You just remember 2008 was rough. And what happened afterwards is the Federal Reserve said, you know, we better stabilize this currency and create some demand for bonds or we could have a massive problem. So they started embarking on what they call quantitative easing. It started with a program called TARP. If you remember that, I mean, that's we're getting into the archives, right? The Troubled Asset Relief Program. And this was a bank bailout. So banks got these emergency funds. And then afterwards, we saw quantitative easing, which was literally the Federal Reserve buying treasury bonds. That changes the interest rate profile of bonds a lot. Okay, And so we've now seen this essentially for the last decade is intervention in the credit markets. And I'm saying this because this is what I'm, you're going to get your chance. You'll see, right, X, is it really changes the dynamic of what risk costs, right? And so now, if that if we risk has risk's a funny word in finance, right? Because like when I say risk to you, what is what do you think of with risk? There's a big difference between jumping off the eighth step to the sidewalk and jumping off the second step to the sidewalk. <laughs> David and I are both very active gentlemen as far as lifting weights is concerned. And when things begin to creak, sometimes you begin to worry, right? So those risks certainly become relative. And mining income in this environment, risks have certainly changed over the last few decades. I mean, if we look at back in 1981, we had a 10-year treasury, which is the safest bond investment that you could make, yielding 15%. Your local banks had certificates of deposits yielding double digits. Today, neither one of those exists, and for a new set of challenges require a new set of solutions. Right, and so when I'm, and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna expand on that for a minute. So if you could get a treasury bond, like a 10-year treasury bond that was paying 15%, what does that tell you about the risk in the the economy in 1981? Like, what does it imply if you were to look at that? I mean, as an academic, so Xavier, if you're looking at that, why would you get such a high interest rate in 1981? You figure? Well, I, I know you gave the academic definition, but from my standpoint, it was I guess as smooth as Sunday morning, if you will, right? When you have a 10-year Treasury yielding double-digit percentage points. Just for reference, today we're hoping to get back to 1% as soon as possible. Right. We're below 1% on a 10-year commitment to loan money to the government. That's really what that means. Right. So, unfortunately, the, the government does not get a credit score the way us fine human folks do, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, they, they do, but I don't buy it. <laughs> things, things have been healthier. They're certainly challenging right now. Despite who you may be voting for, taxes will change. Now, will they change for the better or for the worse? We have no idea, nor do we have a crystal ball. But with that goes back to risk being relative and certainly being different in this environment. Yeah, and so I think that here's, here's the point that I would share with everybody is risk is a – like interest rates are actually a reflection of what you are being compensated to take risk as an investor. Okay, and so if you have guaranteed returns from the federal government of 15% for money that you're going to loan them for 10 years, then the, the, what, what, what we say is the 10-year is supposed to be the risk-free rate of return. Okay, 
Now, I want you to just, in fact, this means something, right? If What is a risk-free rate of return and why do you care as an investor and why am I spending so much time on this issue? Well, it's such a good question that I'm going to make you wait until after the break for the answer because the risk-free rate of return affects the stock market too. And we need to understand that it is relevant today. It will be relevant tomorrow. It was certainly relevant yesterday. And we got to figure out why. But we got to take a break. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn and Xavier Allen. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn, in studio with special guest today, Xavier Allen. And Xavier has, uh, we've got a great history. Uh, he is uh, a resource that I commonly use as an investment professional. And if you're trying to get some, look, check out our podcast because I don't want to spend any more time. I want to get into the good meat and potatoes here, but our podcast will show up tomorrow. You can go to littlejohnfs.com, click under the educate tab, and you'll see a bunch of resources, including our videos and other stuff. But you, you can grab the podcast and revisit what we've already covered. So Xavier, uh, at the break, I was we were talking about the 10-year treasury. You brought up how, you know, back in the 80s, we saw double-digit 10-year treasury rates. Today, less than 1%. And I look at this, and I'm, and I'm making the point of, you know, that's what we call the risk-free rate of return, right? The 10-year treasury. That concept, though, ripples through the financial system, right? Because it's this underlying variable in so many pricing models, right? Uh, and, and here's, I guess, the reason I want to bring this up is because, you know, you guys, like Scion and, and, and your firm, do something really cool. Now, for all everybody listening, just remember that the risk-free rate of return tells us something, okay? If I can get 15% risk-free, how much do I have to get paid to take a risk? Indeed, indeed. Right? I mean, if you could, in 1981, I mean, we look back on it today and you're like, if you could have locked in a 30-year bond for 15%, man, all day long, right? Mm -hmm. uh, except that you could have, and it would have still ended in 2011. <laughs> right? And and then you're, and then the game would change radically. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> so, but what happens is, if you, if you get paid nothing to take, or you get paid a ton to take no risk, it takes a lot of incentive to get you to take risk because the markets are this risk reward trade-off, right? Indeed. So where how, where are we today in terms of the risk reward trade-off in your opinion? Well, the the risk return trade-off that you mentioned, you know, really boils down to the fact that there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? We invest in hopes of future cash flows and accomplishing financial goals for our loved ones in the future. However, to do that today, there is a cost in the form of the money that you shell out to invest in addition to the risk that you are involved with. So when we look at you know a current 10-year treasury, the safest thing out there, the risk-free rate, not even being 1% today, well, after inflation, I don't know how many groceries or medications that you would be able to buy with a 1% yield. Right. right. So then we have to then begin looking further to the stock market and to the bond market and what's next. Where Scion really comes in is right in the middle of that. 
we want to give you the income potential that you used to be comforted by in the fixed income place. But we also want to give you a small percentage of the upside associated with investing in the stock market, right? So we specialize really in senior secured loans, which is just fancy gibberish for a bond-like instrument, except safer because it's higher on the capital structure. David, my apologies for, for nerding out right now, but this is very no, important. No. I love this. I'm, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. So I'll let you finish your thought, but I'm going to come back to something. Okay. From the standpoint of a lot of talk about you know what's been happening throughout COVID, throughout the pandemic, and what we've experienced over the last six, seven, eight months have really stricken small businesses, right? Sure. I think we all know a restaurant that is absolutely on the brink. Yeah, and, or gone, for that matter. I mean, how about movie theaters, right? I mean, didn't we just have uh, Regent Cinema, Regency Cinema? I think they were uh, they just announced bankruptcy last week. You know, or Regal is that what it was? One of those. Absolutely. Uh, you know. Yep, it was Regal. Absolutely right. So whether it's uh, hospitality, restaurant, cruises, you name it. But big tech still seems to be flying high, right? Yeah. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, wow. Netflix. Even though they just missed on the earnings, you name it, right? There is an extreme bifurcation between high-flying tech names like what we see in the Russell 1000 and small businesses like what we would see in the Russell 2000. True. But they still need the same financial support in order to keep their businesses afloat. All right. So uh, for, for the benefit of our listeners, I want to dig into some of this because okay. you just said a bunch, right? And uh, so first of all, I want to come back to uh, we'll, we'll talk about the Russell in a little bit, just because those are actually pretty easy. It's you know that's an indexing strategy and in how we assign and categorize companies. But you mentioned the capital structure. Now this is something I think a lot of investors don't understand, and I think it's really important as a concept because it goes right back to that concept of risk. And so the capital structure. When you said companies need financing and you need to pay attention to where they are in the capital structure, where your investments are in the capital structure. What are you talking about? No problem, and thank you for that segue. So most of you on the line, I'm sure, have at least seen Shark Tank or seen the commercials behind it, right? Great business idea, say David right, and I were right. to start. I'm out. I'm out. No. Okay, no, maybe I'm in. Maybe I'm like, let's make a deal. Say, say, say David and I were to start a, a shoe company, right? Sneakers, we need them to not only work out in, hike, etc. right? We go on Shark Tank, we strike a deal. Equity is typically involved in this deal 8.5 times out of 10. However, David and I as savvy business owners, we don't want to give all of our equity to a guy like Mr. Wonderful. I mean, how many people can you trust named Mr. Wonderful, right? Fair point. We still need financing for our business, and that comes the debt side of things. Whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, same principles apply. So the equity part, though, I'm just, again, for our listeners here. So the equity, just like in your house, right? That's the part that you own. Okay. A business has a total share value of 100%. And if you sell, if, 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 if Xavier, if you and I had 50-50 ownership, we both have 50% equity. If we brought a partner in, we would need to give up some of our portion of the equity for them if they get ownership. But if we don't do it with equity, maybe we take a loan in some form or fashion. And now we're not talking about equity more. We're talking about debt. debt. Precisely. Okay. Okay. So just making sure that we're speaking the same language here. Precisely. All businesses, whether they be big, huge tech conglomerates 
or whether they are smaller and medium-sized businesses, still are comprised of both debt and equity. Yep. Largest of those differences being debt in the event of a default will be repaid first. So in that sense, it is seen as more secure when you invest in that part of the capital structure. Is that what you were referring to the, earlier, David? Exactly. The, the idea here of, so capital structure, if we were going to oversimplify it, is essentially in the event that a company were to go under, where do you stand in line to recover whatever pieces are left? And the higher up in the capital structure you are, the better position you are to recover, right? So if you think about, if you bought shares of Netflix, because they just announced, right? Let's say that a new, let's say Disney Plus just explodes and Netflix ends up losing all of their subscribers and going out of business. Well, the shareholders of Netflix are essentially out of luck. The company goes bankrupt and so you have nothing. The bondholders though, are in a position where if Netflix owns stuff, Right? They have office buildings and desks and chairs and servers and, and DVDs. Stuff. I don't know if you guys remember those. Yeah, DVDs they, still they, exist. Yeah, and those you, you might have to pay to take them. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the, that, those are assets. Well, those assets will be liquidated and the bondholders will get a portion of their investment paid back in that liquidation because of where they sit in the capital structure. So, in a sense, they are taking less risk than the shareholder because they have assets backing up what they're doing, right? Am I saying this correctly? You are. You okay. are. And as we mentioned, you know, risk is relative. So from a debt standpoint, in the event of a liquidation, you do get paid first, but your upside is limited. Correct. Whereas if you own equity, right? Say you own right. a if Netflix has a, a million dollar loan, then you know, you get the interest on the loan and your deal's already structured. If they go out of business, you can recover, but your upside is capped at the interest you agreed to. Precisely. But if you're a shareholder and Netflix doubles in value, well, they could, Netflix could go up a million percent and, you know, you just keep growing with them. So, yeah, the upside, but you've taken on different risks, right? And so that's the thing is that because as an investor, here's what there's this principle and this is like a fundamental doesn't change pillar of investing is that you expect to be compensated for taking the risk or you won't do it right if i can get if i can do two investments same return one of them has less risk than the other i take the less risk investment every time right that's just how it works so if it requires more risk i expect to be compensated for that risk or i'm unwilling to take it which brings us all the way back to home base the interest rate matters because I'm comparing what my cost of risk is, right? So anyway, slightly off the, the path of where we are in the capital structure, when we talk about risks as investors, there's this huge risk of keeping up with inflation right now. Mm -hmm. And you know the stock market has this whole set of risks to include catastrophic loss. What you guys do is not the same as the stock market. It is not. It is not. Right? That's the part that I love. Um, you know, I want, I'm curious about like a couple companies that are in the portfolio. <laughs> well, huh? yeah, like let's talk, let's, let's talk a little bit about what is like, like, what are you guys doing that makes you not the same as a bond and different than a stock? 
and why why do our listeners care but we have to take one of those obscene profit breaks so we better do it so let's grab our next break and when we come back we'll uh, we'll get into that one and you guys uh, if you're trying to figure out what role do alternative investments play we're gonna start digging into that when we get back so stick around we'll be right back this is david little john and xavier allen and you're listening to true wealth on news radio 1240 kqe Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. I am your host, Dave Littlejohn, with special guest Xavier Allen joining me today. Woo-woo! Yep, and we are, so we're, today's one of those shows where we're climbing in the weeds a little bit, but I got to tell you, I think this is important stuff, and everybody, you know, I really think this is the like the, the blocking and tackling, right? The fundamentals of investing starts with this understanding of risk and reward, and what you are getting or giving up with your different investment options and why the third pillar of the mind your shuns lecture I give, right? Diversification and then there's correlation and there's allocation. Allocation is how much of a bite out of the apple, like how big of a, of a piece of your pie do you put in a different area? So is it how much in stocks, how much in real estate, how much in bonds, how much in stuff that's none of the above, right? And we're talking kind of about the none of the above category here. Now, there are, most investments are sort of they're they're not zero correlation, right? Because we all like like we all live in uh, the United States, and or most of you, most of my listeners do, right? And we're using dollars for transactions, so we're in the dollar system. Okay, if we were to start buying things in other countries, now we have yet another layer of system to consider because now we have currency exchange. So there are layers of complexity to investing, but I just want to focus a little bit today on this space that is fixed income. And I've, you know, I've harped on this one before that we're in this super low interest rate environment. It makes bonds as an investment. It's kind of like going to a bank and getting a CD right now. Like what you get point oh nothing. Uh, it's not because banks are bad or anything. It's because the cost of capital for banks and what they can make and what they can charge, they can't they can't pay you much because the risk free rate of returns are so low that their cost of capital is like unless a, unless a bank needs to raise money so they can make loans, because that's how banks make money, right? They loan it out for more than they pay you. <laughs> that's a sophisticated concept. There's there's certainly <laughs> been a lot of consolidation in the industry. I mean, that takes me back to a story. You know, I lived in Philadelphia for 11 years, right? When mm-hmm. I first arrived in Philadelphia, the Sixers and the Flyers were playing at the First Union Center. A couple years later, they were playing at the Wachovia Center. <laughs> My first checking account in college. Couple, couple, couple years later, they were playing at the Wells Fargo Center. And when I discuss that, what I'm illustrating is the consolidation almost looks like a March Madness bracket these days, right? So you're the first, you're just talking about how like we used to have more banks, it seems. And like they, the regional banks, many of them in 08, like they just got gobbled up and they become other banks. Right. And now we have the big five controlling almost 55% of all American deposits, which is staggering when you really think about it. Right. There's that uh, <clears throat> too big to fail, huh? Yikes. Anyway, I, that's <laughs> another show, another day. So, uh, but yeah, so all this bank consolidation and I, what, what name's on the stadium now? Wells Fargo. Okay, Wells, okay. Wells Fargo. so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Mix reviews. Mix reviews. Again, these are not any recommendations. 
Yes, yeah. So we're not giving advice here. But yeah, so a bunch of consolidation. Uh, you know, stadiums cost money. How, how, where? So my guess is that banks were involved in creating stadiums. Precisely, precisely. <laughs> and maybe some municipal bonds, but now we're really in the weeds, right? Very. <laughs> nose diving. Nose diving into the weeds. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, when we talk about when I talk about fixed income, look, I, I'll just say, you know, this is this is opinion. It's not advice. But uh, the asset class is not particularly attractive right now because of something called duration risk. OK, now duration risk is not really it's measured financially. They manage, measure stuff weird. But just think of it as the longer that you tie up your money, the more it can fluctuate in value if there's a change in interest rates. Right. So that's kind of what duration I'm oversimplifying it, but that's kind of what it means. It's just this interest rate sensitivity. And anybody that is tying up money for five, six, seven plus years right now is at the risk of really getting whipsawed if we see a big change in interest rates. Because if you're loaning money out and then rates change, the attractiveness of the loan that you now have will change. Right. I mean, it looks because loans are funny or bonds are funny right they're they're the backwards of what most people think right you're loaning money to somebody you think you're buying a bond i bought something no no you loan money mm-hmm. and if you loan money out for really cheap you're not happy because if the interest rates go up you just loan money really cheap and guaranteed low payments to yourself precisely so you lost value if new loans were higher rate and so that affects your investments. It means that you could lose value if you had to liquidate early and you couldn't wait, and you have to accept lower payments. That's a risk. And we've been in the credit space for for quite some time, and sorry for diving into the weeds in advance, which is why you have a a great financial advisor like David Littlejohn here on the airways that (laughs) you should consult before you use any sorts of these products. But credit investing at the end of the day is boiled down between bonds and loans. There are different advantages to both, Bonds, as we have known and come to love, offer a fixed income payment, and they are very high on the capital structure. Yeah, like the loan basically has negotiated terms, right? That's what a bond is. It's like, here's the terms. You just take them or leave them. Now, a loan also pays you an income payment. However, it is typically a floating rate income payment, i.e., Yeah, what's that mean? What's a floating rate? What's that mean? So when we have interest rates moving north, which they seem more likely to move than south, but we've been saying that the past seven years, that means we will be compensated appropriately, risk, remember that being Mm -hmm. a big topic of conversation here, as those interest rates move up, our investments earn more, thus you earn more through investing through senior loans. Okay, so this is kind of like an adjustable rate mortgage or something. So, oh, rates went up. Okay, well, then your original rate that you're paying on your mortgage is going to change. If rates go up, then your mortgage goes up with it. Is that part of the concept? Yeah, I think that's a pretty simplified way of explaining it. Okay, well, because you guys in this case uh, at Scion, like you're you're talking about, hey, these are loans that if the rates, uh, if interest rates go up, you're not stuck like a bond. You can raise the interest rate it, it it raises with the the market rates and so the the borrower in in essence will pay more but what that does since you guys are the i guess in this case the 
borrow your well what what happens what, what, what happens <laughs> i'm chasing my tail here <laughs> no no worries what happens there is yes you are compensated more and you're actually higher on the structure than capital bonds so now i know all of you are thinking well what, what do i got to give up to do that well as we discussed before there is no free lunch right so loans are typically less liquid than bonds are you can buy a bond today sell it tomorrow one two three loans not so much and with that you are offered a different set of opportunities, such as higher income, being senior on the capital structure, working with duration risk, as well as the opportunity to take advantage of interest rates moving north. Yeah, and so uh, my my simplified summary of this is, look, if interest rates go up because bond terms are fixed, then you, if you're gonna sell your bond tomorrow, you stand to have to sell it for less money, right? Because interest rates, it's this is a more sophisticated concept, but interest rates seek parity meaning that if new rates come out different, then the old rates have to sort of adapt to make them walk and talk the same so that the risk is the same if they have otherwise same credit rating and so forth, right? So a 10-year bond versus a nine-year bond are not the same. One of them has an extra year, okay? If the rates change, the nine-year bond will be slightly less sensitive, but the rates are still gonna change. The bond market will naturally sort of equalize those variables to make the pricing proper. And that means that you could lose money in a bond if rates go up. But a floating rate loan will reprice higher. So it's a less liquid instrument, but it has the ability to reprice so that you have less interest rate sensitivity. So in essence, it does lower that duration risk that we were talking about. Yeah. Right? So I know this is like hoopla, hoopla, hoopla. What, what it means is it's it walks and talks sort of like a bond, but also not like a bond. Hence the term alternative. Right. It just plays in a different space. And it it's a unique role in an investor's portfolio where appropriate. It can be a good diversification tool if it fits the right parameters. And I know we've mentioned the term alternative investment a lot. Just to frame this for you all on the line here. The biggest alternative investment you know and that you touch and that you are part of and that you pay bills for every day is in real estate. Yep. Whether you own a home, whether you own a vacation home, or whether you own a boat that you like to live on sometimes. Right. Physical, tangible stuff that you're paying for has real value. I mean, that, and yeah, nobody ever thinks about it, but you know what? You could buy a classic car and hold it for 10 years and it could potentially be sold for more than you paid for it. That's actually an investment. And because it is not a stock or a bond, it would be considered an alternative. Correct. And I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because categorically, I think people like to think of it. It's like, well, it must be a specific thing. It's like, well, no, it's the things that aren't the other things. It's Those the other. are the alternatives. It's the other. Yeah. Big quotations. <laughs> yeah, other. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's the crux of it, right? I mean, really, what we saw is, um, at least my observation in the industry is that the, the stock market, and, and I'm extrapolating here, I'm gonna just give you some opinion for a minute, right? But it's kind of educated opinion. It seems to me that the more computerized and algorithmically traded the stock markets have become, the more we've seen correlation increase in the stock market in general. Now this, you made this point earlier, X about like the Russell 1000 versus 2000. And you know, those are really, they're indexes that are pretty different. Right. I mean, the, the 1000 is the, the large mega stocks. The 2000 is like the small and mid cap stocks. Mm -hmm. But 
there's a lot more correlation just between stocks in general than there was, say, 20 years ago. Uh, and a lot of that, I think, has to do with the way markets trade now and that we're a lot more globalized in the last 20 years. The, the way markets trade, synthesizing of information, clients wanting to become more involved with their financial advisors, taking step by step and making you know decisions together. And when we speak about the Russell 1000 and the Russell 2000, that is a large percentage of the overall publicly traded stock market. Yeah, it's most but, of them. But fun fact, 99% of all businesses are privately held, and that is why we're having this conversation today. Correct. And here's the uh, where uh, I'm kind of, again, where I'm headed with this one. So you guys are all listening going like, what is your point, Dave? Right? What's your point? Uh, if you've got the the market starts to become more correlated in then you lose some of those benefits of diversification we talked about earlier so you start looking and this is what the what the markets have done is they've, they've started looking for other ways to create low correlation or non-correlation and they've done it through <laughs> i like the word that you just used synthesis but also derivatives and alternatives okay so that's so the question is you know why and how and what should you as an investor be considering as we start to look forward you know we i'm still getting the question about elections and you know i got literally before i walked in the the, the radio show today i had another professional i was talking with going all right well what's going to happen with the markets so uh, i don't want to talk so much about what happens in the markets but what are things strategically that you should be considering and asking your professionals going into this election? But we got to take our last break, so let's do that. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is David Littlejohn and Xavier Allen, and you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Radio Show. Uh, Dave Littlejohn and joining me in studio today, Mr. Xavier Allen. Uh, and I appreciate you being here today, X. Uh, reminder gang, if you're just tuning in, you ought to check out the podcast. We have covered some uh, ground today. We've talked about the mind your shuns and uh, understanding correlation. Correlation is a biggie when it comes to investing and it's often overlooked and uh, I don't know about your opinion here, but I don't. It's not coached much, you know. So unless somebody's really kind of a nerd and tracks this, I don't know that a lot of advisors follow this. I mean, I think the good ones do, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of young advisors, they're. they're I don't know how often correlation comes up, I and mean, how often are you training people on correlation? Well, it's it's funny you mentioned the word training. You you hit it right on the head. There are a lot of advisors out there but they don't all function the same. So when you're looking at a financial advisor, it's very important that they're well-rounded and that they are understanding not only stocks, not only bonds, not only alternatives, but your whole financial picture and the tools that they have available to them. So the, the best rule of advice that I would give when looking for a professional, which is certainly something you have to do when investing in senior secured loans and alternative investments, because that is not something you want to do on your own, folks, the, the ability to just navigate the wrong way is very present. 
right? You want to make sure they have a full grasp of all of the tools in their toolkit and that they can present the best resources to you. Yeah, yeah. So I think we say this a lot on the program. You know, I understand that, look, it's it's our program, right? It's our show and we've, we've got our own firm. Uh, and I send you to our website, right? Uh, littlejohnfs.com, uh, subtle plug. <laughs> uh, but I also remind folks that the uh, the big purpose, and you know, my heart behind this one is that you would find, like if one, to educate you, right? So this, this show is about sharing some parts of the market and, and things that you may not otherwise get. But the other is, to to remind you that there's there's sort of two primary categories of folks out there the do it yourself well maybe three there's like the do it yourself there's the hire somebody to help and then the people that just pretend it doesn't exist and they ignore it right and that's a dangerous category right because you really are at the sways of whatever current that you're in if you're in the river you're going downstream hopefully it takes you where you want to go salmon salmon yeah yeah so I am trying to encourage, start with a plan. So our firm has these three basic pillars. If you go look on our signage, it will say educate, plan, invest. And that's what you're getting on this show mostly is the education and then the planning emphasis. Because something like alternatives like senior secured loans, uh, that is not something you just wade into, okay? In fact, primarily, I don't even know how you access it in the retail space. I mean, there's probably an ETF or something where you could try to get into this a little bit, but candidly, uh, you're gonna get a very different option set than what is available to some of the pros out there, right? What I, what I, I would like to add on to that real quick, what I think David is also saying is, the same way risks have changed when looking for proper income investments, your ability to screen your financial advisor has also changed. It is not just enough to know how long they've been in the industry, but what is their approach to the industry as far as an education component is concerned? The same way you consult your physician about a lump on your knee. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, we, we literally talk about fit in our office a lot. In fact, uh, Xavier, you and I, we've talked about this, that there's different kinds of practices. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you work with lots of different advisors. So I do. This, I do. Is, this is not like you're not coming on the show to plug Little John Financial, right? I mean, <laughs> you've, you've been a you're good sport. But, like, I mean, if, if, if one of your other advisor clients were to listen to this program, my hope would be that they could literally let their clients listen to this and, and get a little bit better understanding of – just the portfolio construction in this day and age, modern investment construction has complexities when it comes to risk management. And Certainly. so, uh, and you just have so many options now. They have expanded, they've exploded, right? The number of options in my lifetime has been magnified so radically since I started. And it's been, golly, like 20 plus years that I've been doing this. Uh, so there's just a ton of tools that are at your disposal as an investor uh, and for advisors to help you as well. But none of those fancy dog and pony shows matter if it's not the right personality fit to begin with and you're not getting those core elements of the, the planning and the service that you need to get it done. Because there's just so many tools out there. So uh, that I think that's part of why, because of the complexities, I tell people all the time, work with a pro. Right. I mean, if mm -hmm. you don't, if you can't navigate this yourself, you don't have the time, aptitude, or resources, then get help. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, also, I tell people all day long, 
like uh, if it's going to be, you know, it's what it's going to be up to you, right? You got to do it. There's there's some mnemonic. It's up to me, but it's not that. It's like it's up to you, right? If you're listening, then take financial responsibility. And guess what? The election doesn't mean nearly as much, right? If if you engage personally and make active decisions to navigate the system, you do better. Okay, so don't be don't be a passive participant here. Get active in it. Make the right call, um, and then. The, the other one is, you, so the name Xavier Allen, I want you to track this one because I'm hoping that we get to say, heard it here because uh, some fun ambitions, uh, you know, when, when they bring back March Madness, that'll be fun for us, right? This year was pain. Very much so. <laughs> but uh, So sad. I, I hope that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, I'm not going to share the dream yet to just explain that March Madness, I hope that one day, well, can, can we share it? I have an affinity for X's and O's. Yes. So, <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, an affinity for X's and O's and clipboards and whistles, right? <laughs> and, and, and a particular love of basketball. So I, I love that there's a dream and an ambition, but I'm, I'm thankful that uh, in, the, in the here and now, uh, you've been around to help guide and coach and so forth uh, for our firm, certainly. So, look, um, last one here as the music is starting, I guess – just thanks for joining us, X. Thank you guys for having me, and thank you for listening, and work with your financial advisors. They are paid to answer your questions. Good stuff. Well, we're out of time for now, so until next time, uh, catch us at littlejohnfs.com. Call us at 541-375-0898. But until then, we got to rock, so be good, everybody. You've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.